Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Gavin Quinney started his working life as a porter at an auction house before moving into the burgeoning computer industry in the mid-1980s. Visit to Bordeaux in 1999 persuaded him to buy a struggling chateau in the Entre-deux-Mer. Listen to us discuss how he's turned the place around since then. With a little help from celebrity chefs Gordon Ramsay and Rick Stein, his views on the future of Bordeaux and why he's really angry about UK excise duty. Hello, Gavin. How are you? Tim, very nice to very nice to be with you. Oh, likewise, it's it's very nice to hear your voice. And you're in Bordeaux, I'm sure, aren't you? And probably flowering at the moment in the vineyards. Yeah, just we're just sort of um, come, not to the, not quite the end of flowering. I mean, the Cabernet's still still going. Uh, so yeah, so so pretty good flowering. Been out there today. Floraison, yeah. Checking the, the vineyards. I'm always out. I'm always out there checking. Too. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's uh, well. That's work too. Yeah, I like to. I like to count the bunches. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because that's money in the end, isn't it? The bunches. I mean. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, you need a bel sortie, which we've had. Mm-hmm. Certainly, Bordeaux has had that. Um, uh, and and then and then obviously flowering is pretty critical. So it kind of. Yeah. I do. I do spend a bit of time looking at that. And then, of course, just up the road last last week, they had hail. So. You know, you, you you are always conscious of potential disasters. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't realise until, like, you know, I know you pretty well, but I didn't realise a bit of your past. You're actually a farm boy. You were born on a farm in Worcestershire, yeah? I just yeah. wonder what kind of farm it was. Yeah, well, it was, um, I mean, at the time, it, it, it's sort of all sorts, but really a a dairy farm at the time. I and mean, Quinny's Dairies, I mean, it, it, was, it was actually quite a big operation in the Midlands. Um, Worcester, Warwickshire borders mm, in the sixties mm. before it was taken over by the dreaded milk marketing board. Yeah, so mm. yeah, so 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 dairy was was big. In fact, my uh, yeah, my cousin Adam Quinney, he's a proper farmer, um, mm. not like Jeremy Clarkson or some <laughs> wine dandy like me. You know, he's he's a proper farmer. So he he still farms there. Um, uh, so my first cousin Adam does that. And, and any vineyards nearby in those days? Probably not, were there? No, no. I don't know about many vineyards nearby now. I mean, there's, you know, there's uh, three counties. There's, yeah, so it's, I wouldn't say it's prime terroir uh, where no. we are, um, <laughs> even today. But I may, I may <laughs> be wrong. Somebody's going to be wrong. <laughs> so you didn't go to farming. I mean, you also didn't go to university. It's interesting. I mean, you told me that punk got in the way of your Greek studies. We were about the same age. And so we were probably listening to punk about the same time. So yeah. which which bands were you into? Were you a Pistols fan? I mean, were you doing the full the full bin liner and and, and, and safety pins? I was, um, yeah, no, I, I did get into that. I dyed my hair orange, put in the Tita hair straightener, and, um, which didn't work. Um, no, I was quite into, I was quite into punk. Um, so yeah, it, that hit me at just the wrong age. I became rebellious, uh, somewhere between quite successful O levels, I'd say when I, well, I must've been a model student then, but then sort of 17, 18, it all got a bit, it all went pear shaped. 
Um, I don't know about getting in the way of Greek, but uh, yeah. So English, English and history, but then Greek waned, and and then art. I got I got kicked out of the art school for smoking. So yeah, didn't didn't quite work out. Um, uh, yeah, going back to your question of the bands, I, I saw the Clash a lot. Uh, I love the Jam. Oh, fairly. I mean, the Sex Pistols didn't last that long. Um, no. You know, I never could see them. But I was no, I was really I was really into those early days. You know, so. They were an amazing band, were they? I mean, you, know, you then got a job where, at Christie's, didn't you? What were you doing there? Yeah, well, straight after school, so in beginning of September after after I left in the summer. Uh, so I, I got a job as a as a porter in the pictures department, pictures being old master paintings, really, not the modern stuff. Uh, but that was it was actually a really fascinating job. And I think being a porter at Christie's was a great was a, uh, and it's such such a great part of London, King Street, St James's. It was mm. it was a great introduction to Lon- London and the art world and all that. And so, my gap year then went on to in, into another one. You know, uh, so I stayed. But then I got the London bug a bit. Did you get to handle any masterpieces or not? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, proper stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and looking back, um, yeah, no, looking back at the, we all we thought they were all so expensive then but of course it's i suppose it's a bit like bordeaux first growths yeah. you know then compared to what they are now so you know the 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 numbers have just spiraled out of control obviously so very yeah, different yeah. Well, a great a great time so a lot of those people on antiques roadshow you know i still still look fond back at a lot of them all of them were my bosses <laughs> you know, <not> <laughs> And then you got a job in the wine business, didn't you? At a company called, I mean, a bizarre name, Wine Growers Association. And, yeah. you know, and you did your you did your first exams, you did your high certificate, you know, you got a distinction, all set for a successful career in the wine trade. What happened? I mean, I'd have thought, well, you've ended up with a successful career in the wine trade, but not the one you expected, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it ended a little unhappily at, at, at Wine Growers Association. Uh, probably, uh, I think it's... <laughs> Truth be told, actually, I uh, I've, I fell out with with my boss and got fired and claimed for unfair dismissal, and I mm. won, and um, that gave me a little nice little break. Um, mm. Yeah, so no, that was uh, uh, that was it was it was the the best of times and the worst of times. No, it was it was good, but I but I did fall in love with wine for sure. I mean, no question through that. Oh, so you'd got you'd got the bug, even though you, even though you lost the job. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was, I was, I was, uh, I was. No, I, I definitely got the got the bug, you know, from top to bottom. The the, yeah. the great stuff. And if you think back to the, you know, those days, stuff like you know, California, the early seventies, mm. vintages, what seventy three, seventy four, mm. things like that. Just, I mean, I was totally spitten by by wines from all over the world, actually. And and your next job was was something where you stayed a long time, didn't you? Which was called Computer Center, uh, and this was presumably back in. Amstrad days was it? Have the Amstrad come out? I think my first computer was an Amstrad. I bought around then, eighty five, eighty six. Yeah. So actually, funny enough, well, we were we were IBM and Compaq dealers. In mm. fact, we were IBM's biggest dealer. We were Compaq's biggest dealer. Toshiba mm. later on. Do you remember those? Mm. The, yeah, I do. The calls. Um, so we no, we were we we it was a small, well, medium sized company when I joined, and then it became quite a big business. In fact, actually, talking about Amstrad. I actually sold Amstrad some IBM PCs 
I think they then probably dissected them <laughs> and then they brought out then they brought out their copy so uh i didn't tell too many people about that but i think i might have been the source of handing over the, over the oops uh, you helped alan you helped alan sugar oh god yeah but you stayed there for 14 years till 1998 you ended up being head of national sales and that's a pretty important job i mean was it fun did it teach you stuff about business Oh God, yeah, no, it was really fun. So I, I started as a sort of junior salesman. In fact, mm. if you go onto the Computer Center website, bearing in mind, Computer Center has an A in the middle and ER on the end. Very dodgy computer. spelling. Computer, yeah. I know, despite <laughs> being a British business at the time, uh, that was the spelling. Uh, but if you go onto their website and just flick down to the history page, uh, you'll see me with with an old IBM PC and one of the first Macs. You know, looking looking quite dated. Certainly, I was, and and the, <laughs> and, the and the computers too. But I think it must be their only photos where they had the Apple Mac and the, and the IBM PC in, in the same one with me in it. Um, but yeah, so 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 started as a salesman, uh, ended up um, running a branch, then then London regional manager, then uh, then head of sales nationally, and we became a you know we we were we became a, even then in the mid to late 90s, a, a very successful business. I mean, we turned over a billion pounds in 1997, wow. which was my last year, which was just phenomenal. I mean, about 5,000 staff, I think. So That's it was a proper, yeah. proper business. Um, yeah. But then it floated in 98. And so I, I was 37 then I, and, and regarded as one of the old boys. You know, mm. So it's time to let new blood come through. Um, and, you know, you had some share options, so presumably made a bit, you know, a bit of cash out of it. I mean, not enough, obviously, to, to buy a football club. But, I mean, could you have retired? No, I don't think so. And also, you know, 37, I th- uh, what I could, uh, it, things could have gone very differently. I invested in a, mm. in a, in a dot-com business, which went horribly pear-shaped. Mm. And every time someone says, did you keep a flat in London? I always think, well, if I'd only invested the money in the flat rather than this dot-com business, uh, things might have been very different. Yeah. So it's rather, rather sad. Uh, but yeah, so, but it, no, it was a good, it was a very, you know, I'm, most of my colleagues thought I was one very lucky bastard, uh, mm. you know, with the timing and, um, you know, the time when I joined the management team and got the share options, giving up a sales salary as it were and things like that but mm-hmm. but it all it all worked out well but if you remember back then 98 com time was a mm-hmm. very hazardous place to be when you had shares in mm-hmm. one of those businesses so it was quite a nervy time as well mm-hmm. i mean you then went on gardening leave didn't you and you took advantage of that to start visiting wine regions i mean you were already interested in wine i think you went to you went all over the world didn't you yeah yeah no it was it was it was great um uh, you know, so I went to it, principally, so 98, 99, principally, I'd been around Europe quite a bit. I'd been to South Africa already a couple of times. And then, um, uh, so I went to Ar- your your love, Argentina mm-hmm. uh, and, mm-hmm. and Chile. And then the other side of the world went to Australia and then came back and then went to New Zealand. And it was, it was a bit like, well, a bit like nowadays where everyone runs around all the chateaux on premier time. I tried to get to as many vineyards in my time in those countries that I could. And I learned an awful lot. And I was just, I just became hooked. So I'm in Australia. I mean, I went from everywhere from Margaret River to Coonawarra, Barossa, Adelaide Hills, uh, to, uh, to, you know, Hunter, the whole, the whole shebang really. So, uh, you know, Clare Valley to see the Rieslings, you know, and so on. So I was, I was really on the hunt to learn a lot more with, I can tell you absolutely zero interest in, 
in buying. Oh, right. I was going to ask you that. He didn't actually buy something. He just learned. No, it. no. I mean, there was, I was offered one opportunity in New Zealand, but that's a long, mm. long way away. So instead of which, you know, you went to the London Wine Fair, the Olympic, which was a big deal in those days, wasn't it? In May 99. And a friend said to you, why, why don't you go to an expo, which is a big trade fair down in Bordeaux. And that meeting kind of changed your life, didn't it? I mean, do, does the friend still exist? And do you talk to him about it? Yeah, well, that's, gosh, it's, yeah, it's strange thinking about, uh, does he, very sadly, Steve um, died a couple of years ago. Oh, sorry to hear that. We're the, we're the same age. And, yeah. uh, but amazingly, you know, in answer to your question, he came to stay actually where I'm sitting now in our farmhouse mm. uh, about five years after we bought Boduke. And he came mm. with his daughter, Emma, and there was a young guy working for us at the time who was a, a, a former young headhunter in London who wanted to buy a vineyard. And he came and worked for us, uh, uh, 04, 05. And, uh, to, and I was doing my best to try and put him off uh, buying a vineyard. And, uh, and as one thing led to another, uh, that was during the Expo as well. So that must, so, uh, that must have been 05. And, um, and then Alex sat next to Emma. So this was Steve's daughter. Um, and they got on really well, started going out. And they uh, then ended up having their wedding reception here at Boduc uh, <laughs> in 2007. And now they live, and Alex has still not bought a vineyard very sensibly. He's in the wine business, in the vineyard business. And uh, he and, and Emma have uh, two boys and they live about 10 minutes up the road. So that all came, it all, you know, you, you joined. All through Boduc, one meeting. Yeah. 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 I mean, you, I mean, you, you know, you liked Bordeaux so much, didn't you? You liked the city, you liked the sunshine and um, the region. You went back a month later uh, and you went to Boduc. You, I mean, amongst other places, you went to a tasting at Boduc. What made you go to Boduc? Well, I'd, I'd got this sort of feeling going around, you know, the next boat, June 99, it, the sun was shining, hmm. Bordeaux had lots of potential. I went out to the coast as well, went around some vineyards. And then I thought, well, I, I want to go back and have another look because this is actually beginning to, you know, Bordeaux's much closer than any of the other places I've talked about. And, you know, the connections are quite good and and the, it had the, the right sort of vibe. And hmm. uh, I ended up sort of, looking at vineyards specifically, uh, talking to a few people and, and, uh, it was actually Bob Watts at Chateau de Soy who said, Oh, go and go to it. And I think he wrote, Oh no, it was not him, somebody else, but they wrote, wrote down on a post-it note, Boduc, and you pronounce it beautifully, Tim, because you're, you're well, you're well <laughs> rung up in wine, but it is great. And I, and I said, how do you pronounce that? And they said, Oh, Boduc. And I, uh, so I came here for a tasting. And it, and I thought, oh, it's nice. And I did have a feeling when I came into the property as I drove down the drive. I mean, strange as it may seem, and it might seem like, like you know, happenstance afterwards, but I did have a feeling about it. The wine was very good. And the guy told me, the owner said that he was in the process of selling it. And I said, oh, do you mind me asking how much for? Because when somebody says they're in the process of selling it, it's mm. almost easier to ask how, mu how much than mm. it's for sale. And mm. it was exactly the same price as a as a house that we were interested in buying in London, uh, in Putney, funnily enough, mm. around the corner for you. And yeah. uh, the house in Putney has obviously subsequently gone up a lot more in value. But the but uh, it, you know it it, it was uh, you know what was it nearly two hundred acres. You know, with a with a chateau, with a separate farmhouse, a winery. Um, uh, obviously, what I didn't realise at the time, but a, a, you know, a, a money pit. But but at the same mm. time, you know, it seemed like a huge opportunity. And back then, of course, 
you know, do you remember the old 10 francs to the pound, you know, and yeah. we're talking, I suppose in today's rates about 150, you know, euros to the, to the pound. So the exchange rate was quite positive as well. We, we just mm. expected that. And, and so I, I actually phoned Angela the next day after this extensive mm. tasting. This is your wife. Yeah. My wife, Angela. Yeah. yeah. I phoned her uh, in Wandsworth and I said, what do you think about living in France? really, you know, because we'd sort of talked about it. And she said, do you know what? I think it'd be a great idea. I hadn't mentioned the vineyard at this point. And I said, well, that's good because I've just bought a chateau. And, <laughs> and although, although we could have, I could have wriggled out of it, I mean, she, she came down the next day. And, and so we, we saw this and one other property. And I think the timing was such, this was July. And, and we thought it, we either, it's now or never. You know, we do it. We had two kids, Sophie, Georgie, four, Sophie, two. We'd either do it now or, or never. And so due diligence went out the window and, and we moved down here and, and moved into this farmhouse in at the end of August, 99. So completely bonkers. So within two months, really, of arriving yeah, at Vinexpo, yeah, you, you owned yeah. a chateau. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I, hadn't, I didn't own it. Uh, we were sorting out all the, all the you know, the paperwork, which, which took yeah. some time, actually. Uh, that mm. was seemed like a, a breeze, but actually it was quite a lot of complications. And was it, was it scary? I mean, did, were you, did you speak good French at the time or not? No, no. Um, um, so what do, you, what do you call it? Schoolboy, holiday, corporate French, mm. that sort of thing. Um, I think, yeah, I think that was a bit of a, that was a worry. I th- but really this sort of, I we had had, and I'd certainly had a really good, run in london you know mm. 20 years in london mm. and uh it had been great and i knew it might not be anywhere near as good and we were going to give up a lot but it it seemed like this you don't get those sort of opportunities to to live a different life mm. Uh, mm. very often and, uh, and so we went for it for better or for worse and, and you arrived to pick the 99 vintage which wasn't wasn't the greatest was it i mean do you have any idea or did it start to dawn on you what you were letting yourself in for? Yeah, well, yeah, that, there were moments. I must say, to be fair, ninety nine. There's some good. There's some good wines from ninety nine. Margot had a good good run, and I don't mean Chateau Margot, but it was a good appellation, of Margot, a good vintage of Margot, um, and others. I'm getting a bit detailed there, but uh, but no, but it was. I do remember um, picking quite rotten Merlot grapes with with Barbara Abraham, who's a who's a master of wine. Um, and in the pouring rain, and it was, it was sort of, it was one of those sort of, she, she was looking at me like, do you really know what you're doing with this? <laughs> like, uh, but fun enough, the, the Sauvignon worked out really well. Um, and that, that, you know, that, that wine put us in good, that put, that actual wine put us in good stead. I think the red was not one of our greatest, to be fair. That, that, that vintage, yeah. But we, but we, but the but the investment in the vineyard is not surprisingly had gone down a lot. So if you don't put yeah. the effort into it's the same today. If you don't put the right treatments in against your mildew or your or your polyture or whatever, you know, if you don't put that in, it's difficult. Hmm. I, I wonder, you know, what, what what do you know now that you wish you'd known then? Is it was it just money? How much it would cost? Gosh, uh, yeah, I, I um, that I'd almost need a few pages to think about that. No, I, th- I think probably. I think we rushed in a bit with spending money. It's so easy to throw money at a vineyard and a winery. And, and a, I mean, we're doing up a chateau as well. You know, it's a, I mean, the budget just flew out the, the, the entire budget flew out the, 
door in a couple of months sort of thing. So I think, I think, and th- there is a, I think there's always a general, but there's, there's two perceptions I think that people have, and I'm making this up as I, as I go along, but there's one is people always think they'll do a better job, make a better product than, than was made previously in a vineyard. So mm-hmm. and sometimes that may or may not be the case. Uh, but the other thing is, I think people think that straight away you, you go in and you make a living, you know, you, you, you will have your costs and then you'll sell the wine for a profit and you'll make a living. Well, that's really quite a tough gig in wine. And uh, it was then, and it is now it's the same thing, you know, and we, we spent too much money really. At the start. Yeah. At the start. I mean, we were, we had too many staff. I didn't realize that actually you need the right staff at the right time rather than too many permanent staff, things like that. Mm. But talking about the staff, we have had, Daniel and Nelly with us since that first vintage, and that's been absolutely mm. critical to us. I mean, you, you've got a very big break. I would call it a lucky break because you make your own luck, really. Thanks to two famous chefs, so so Gordon Ramsay and Rick Stein, both of whom have been very good to your wine. Lindy liked your wine. Just how did you meet those two guys? Yeah, I mean, that's another. That's a. That's two chapters of the book. Um, <laughs> uh, in brief, in brief. So, uh, Ramsey, uh, I went to lunch actually by, by chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I'd done somebody a favor and he took me to Ramsey's to lunch. That would have been in the summer of 2000. And mm-hmm. I had actually been quite a good customer of Ramsey's previous establishment. He didn't own it. He was the chef at a place called Aubergine. Do you remember? I remember Aubergine? that. Yeah, yeah. Very good rest, really fantastic mm-hmm. restaurant, good value, great wine list. Um, and in fact, I was hoping to meet, I think he was called Thierry, the sommelier at, at, uh, at Aubergine. Uh, but he'd been replaced. I got introduced by, you remember Jean-Claude, the maitre d', who's he's yeah, actually yeah. just retired from restaurant Gordon Ramsay. So he's been with Ramsay for many, many years from Aubergine mm-hmm. all the way through. And I was introduced by Jean-Claude to a, uh, a pimply young Yorkshireman from Scarborough called uh, Ronan Saburn. Um, and, uh, and, and Jean-Claude said, Ronan, this is Gavin, a very good uh, customer of, of ours before. And he's bought this Chateau in Bordeaux and makes delicious wine. Would you like to try it? You know, so he, he laid it on and Ronan, you could see his eyes rolling, thinking, Oh, here we go again. But actually we got on really well. Um, and sorry, it is a long story, but, but, um, Ronan's version of events is much better than mine. Mine's more protracted and, designing the label with Ramsey's signature on, which is what <laughs> happened, blah, blah, blah. But Ronan tells the story that I actually took two bottles of wine into the restaurant with me for lunch. I mean, can you imagine? You pull out two, one bottle and then another because he said the first bottle was corked, but I had another <laughs> bottle with me, can you believe, of the Sauvignon Blanc, uh, which we called Bordeaux Blanc at, at the time. So we shouted Bordeaux Blanc. And um, so he took it He took it at the back and he, and he says he says today, he says, you know, he really liked the wine, the, the, the non-corked bottle and at the end of service he gave a glass to gordon and said what do you think of this wine and gordon really liked it and then ronan came out and and uh, and said we're considering it as a house wine what do you think now that's not quite how it happened but it's not far off uh, he's just sort of shrunk it by about two months or three months but that's a massive break what a but break it was a massive break yeah. And and yeah. I did say, you know, so we did design the label with with the Chateaubriand label with Ramsey's signature on, which was part of the restaurant, and it's still mm. part of the restaurant logo today, I think. And and Rick Stein, you 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 were you were down you were down in Padstow. Yeah, and oh, and the interesting thing then as well, after that they got their third mission star, 
So that was quite that was quite important to, to go in when they just had just had the two. But uh, yeah, so Padstow, I went down. In fact, we had Ronnie, uh, Ronnie Arnold, Jill Stein's sister, Veronica. So Ronnie here was here a few weeks ago, staying in our farmhouse, and uh, and I said to her, I said, "Can you remember Ronnie exactly what happened?" And it was a similar thing because I remember it being quite a protracted business. I definitely remember going down there, seeing Rick, seeing Ronnie, chasing it up, you know, phone calls, you know, all this sort of thing, faxes or whatever it was. Uh, But she said, no, I brought down two bottles and I gave her a bottle and I gave Rick a bottle and they both liked it. And they said, yeah, that's great. And we became... Love it. We became, we'll have it. And and again, I did the label with his signature on. And so we've, we've always been one of... The special selections, and that was mentioned by Victoria Moore in the Telegraph quite recently about how we got there, and and you know they still love it, and they've been great supporters as they have uh, two of the rosé too. So it's been the uh, house rosé there for about ten years too. Well, so. and it was it was great that you had those guys backing you because you lost a lot of your existing clients, not your existing clients, but the Chateau's existing clients. How, how did you manage to lose them? Oh, it's oh, it's not it's quite hard to gain customers. It's very easy to lose them especially in wine. And uh, because the previous customers mostly came through the Place, you know, Bordeaux Negociants, and, you know, wine, as you know, through at, at, at our level, uh, at uh, Bordeaux generic level, is is and always has been pretty, pretty inexpensive. And so because we'd invested quite a lot and we wanted to get more value, I mean, after all, the previous owner had sold because he was losing money, you know, so... Mm-hmm. We, we we took quite drastic steps, maybe maybe a bit too drastic, um, uh, but we lost all the trade customers. And at the same time, as although I had the success with Ramsey's and, and Stein, simultaneously I was talking to a few London wine merchants, you know, and not surprisingly he said, you know what, there's absolutely no market for Bordeaux Sauvignon. It was then that I started to think, you know, that's when I got onto the direct model kind of uh, thing because we had to get the wine to the restaurants. So then I was in a position to provide wine to other customers as well. So we went, we completely circumnavigated the, I was really shocked by the trade system here back in the day. I remember, you know, considering how direct really the computer business was um, and people even more direct the, than us, you know, you mentioned Amstrad, you know, or mm. Dell, or people like that. And I was just amazed that, that Chateaus went through courtiers who went through negociants, who went through importers or agents. So all these middlemen, basically. I just yeah? couldn't believe it. Yeah. And so yeah. that, so I, I suppose I wasn't well disposed to continue down that route, but it was a bit drastic. We lost a lot of business. But your, your computer background helped you to develop e-commerce, didn't it? And, and also direct sales, I suppose, in a way, in that you were, you were used to being in business. Um, was that how you started to build the business? Yeah, actually, it was from, we started building the business, so it was pre, so I really, I suppose, going back to my sort of uh, gardening leave phase, I sort of wanted to do something with my computer back, industry background and and wine, but it was a little bit early. You know, if we think, you know, Google was only founded in 1998. So I think it was a little bit, uh, most of the names in wine, you know, many of those names then have gone. So it was probably a little bit early for, you know, proper online sales when I'm talking about the early 2000s. Um, and so we did a, we did a physical newsletter and we, so we built that business from actually just asking people to hand their Chris, hand us their Christmas card lists. Mm-hmm. And if people from their list, bought wine we would give them you know a bottle free sort of thing to, uh, towards their next order so we sort of grew the physical mailing list mm-hmm. um quite substantially actually in the early days so we sent out a thing called la gazette 
mm-hmm. um, you know, which was an eight page physical thing, bit of chat, bit of wine mm-hmm. stuff, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with a little envelope. So that's how, that's how that run. And actually it was quite a successful, mm-hmm. successful way of doing it. And we did repay. So the e-commerce came later, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Our first proper website was probably 03 and then yeah. really 08. And then, and then, you know, uh, yeah, obviously we've had to change it. And I slightly regret, in a way, you know, we do, I do a monthly email, the occasional offers and, you know, but actually fun enough, maybe I should go back to La Gazette. I think once in a while. <laughs> I liked La Gazette. It was really good. It was fun. I think once in a while that might be, maybe we should, maybe we should do that. Yeah. I think it's all gone a bit online, you know, and offers on email and stuff like that. So, Just tell us how many wines you make now, because you've got quite a diverse range, haven't you, of, of, of whites and reds and, and other stuff too, as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the things I think if you, if you partly the nature of selling direct, uh, but also a lot of the properties around us, you know, do make, I mean, we make a Sauvignon Blanc and a Semillon. Mm. Um, we, we happen to keep those separate generally. Um, we make two reds. One is a, 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 a you know, oak aged, uh, more, slightly more expensive cuvee um, in smaller numbers. Then we do a Cremel, which has been very successful. We'd never dreamt of that at the start, but we we planted a vineyard in 04 and then made our first vintage in 2014, 10 years later, you know. Wow. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we make a Cremel. Uh, we have done a Sauterne before, not from our vineyard, but from working with a grower down in Sauterne, which proved successful. We should we should probably do that again, but but I've just been a bit busy, I suppose. But, yeah, full range. And I think quite a lot of our neighbours do a full range too, you know. And how many hectares do you have t- total? So 25 around the property, around the chateau in a single block, around the chateau and the winery in a single block. And then we have six and a half hectares up the road, um, which fun enough are mostly Cabernet Franc, um, which we use for making the rosé. Because uh, okay, we've got quite yeah. a lot of Merlot here and I, I needed uh, to balance it with some Cabernet. So so that's that's on a lease. Um, but so in, in all our... our uh, yeah, thirty-one something like that, so seventy-five acres or so. And, and you're in a place called Crillon, yeah, which is which is in the Entre Deux Mer, uh, between the two rivers rather than seas. I mean, you know, even its greatest fans would not say it's the most prestigious part of Bordeaux. But I just wonder how hard it is to compete with the top names, you know, with the first growth, that sort of and second growth, and all those things, and the and the top right bank properties. Because a lot of Petit Chateau are struggling, aren't they? I mean, you, you're you're doing it, making a good profit now, but it's not been easy, is it? No, no, no. It's not been easy. And so there's there's several there's several questions in there. So yeah. uh, I would I'd say the last bit. Look, just taking the last bit. I think the of course there's a lot of petit chateaus that are struggling. There are though a lot that I think are doing pretty well. They have a good mm-hmm. range. They have good direct um, export customers. Whether they're you know if I think around here, I mean you know th- there's around Crayon, which is sort of like the main market town in the Entre de Mer now, probably uh, about 25 kilometers from Bordeaux. But around us, you know, we've got well-known names, uh, Chateau Tuli, Chateau Fontenille, uh, uh, Grand Verdu, not far up the road, you know, a bit further up the road, much bigger property in Chateau Bonnet and, and places like that. So lots of good producers, lots of them doing very well with a good broad range, but mm. a zillion small producers who are really struggling. And I would say as a, as a general, uh, not so much necessarily just around here. In fact, we're probably, 
one of what two or three chateaus in in crayon not many but but generally in the entre de mer people think of the entre de mer as a white wine region but actually uh, that's where the sort of bulk of bordeaux uh, you know generic bordeaux red and, mm-hmm. and bordeaux superior red comes from mm-hmm. and uh across the board if you look at the whole piece i'd say about 40% of the massive Bordeaux vineyard is probably unprofitable and won't ever be profitable. So it's got serious issues. Um, uh, but, too, but in my opinion, too much red wine is made. It, you know, it's planted with 90%. And that's red. why stuff's being pulled out, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's 90% red Bordeaux. With, well, okay, production-wise, 85%, 5% rosé, 10% white, but, but, and that's mm. both dry and sweet white. But, but mm. you know, it's, there's just too much... Bordeaux red being made. I mean, it, it, that's, so that's the biggest struggle, um, which has got nothing to do with with the top wines and the and the premier mm-hmm. circus and all the rest of it. In fact, you know, even on Twitter, you could look at things people saying, you know, the prices are crazy. You know, even mm-hmm. today or whenever, the mm-hmm. prices are crazy on premier. You know. Mm-hmm for the top shutters and then people in the same argument saying but why are they ripping out vines well it's a different it's two di- totally different things of course. a different world a different yeah. world completely yeah um you know you've got people who can't sell their wine at, at well under a euro a liter let, mm-hmm. let alone you know you know a, a top second growth would come out at what two thousand pounds a case you know yeah. um, um, so it's a different yeah. and that's the second that's, and that's in bond so you'd have to pay oh, VAT yeah, and duty and all yeah, that yeah. stuff yeah, so, yeah. So, it's a, so it's a different world. But I don't think I don't think Bordeaux is actually very good at allying itself mm-hmm. as a whole to this fantastic publicity machine of these fantastic properties. Mm-hmm. You know, we should. You know, I I don't see them as I see them as friends. You know, and mm-hmm. I, actually, I genuinely do. You know, most of those people they are friends, and I see mm-hmm. them as as friends. We just we just have a slightly different product and a different price point. Because um, I mean, you, you, you get to go and taste those wines because you know you're partly a journalist as well. You do a bit of journalism for LiveX and Chances Robinson. You do a very good annual report on on Bordeaux on, on the vintage. I mean, do you enjoy that bit of what you do? A bit of fun? Yeah, I do actually. I've got I've got a little bit too geeky with it. I think I think uh, I think most people would look at it and say, "Do we really need that much detail about the weather?" Uh, but actually, I, I sort of started it because I think back in the day. Um, there was, and, and at all times, there's, there are misconceptions about vintages and weather and, you know, and, and then, uh, well, I mentioned the hail, you know, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, you, uh, you want to tell the, the truth about these things. And so, so I get quite factual about yields and, and weather conditions and so on. And, um, and also let's, you know, we've got, you know, we've had a string of fantastic vintages, you know, all the way from, pretty much 09 i think you know we've had some you know a couple of couple of downers but really some amazing vintages in the last 15 years or so and uh and people i think are quite thirsty for the information and i think a lot of other journalists quite use and a lot of chateaus quite like to see my reports because i don't talk about just one particular region i talk about the weather conditions across the whole of Bordeaux and things like that. So, And people can get them free, can't they? I mean, they have to subscribe to Genesis's site, but on LiveX it's free, isn't it? Yeah, but it's free on Genesis too. I insist, yeah. uh, you know, that it's free. You, you, can, you, can, you can get it on the slightly less visited gavinquinney.com and just go under go, go under Bordeaux reports. You'll see. <laughs> and they're all there, right? And if you want to see anything, just go, go in the search box and type frost or type yeah. hail and you'll get the full ghoulish, you know, 
uh, yeah. reports and everything. But I do, I do like to taste the top wines as well, because otherwise, if I didn't taste all the wines, the Primo Circus, the Primo's, uh, the Union de Grand Cru, and and the top wines, um, you know, then it would be a bit pointless trying mm. to understand the, the 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 impact of the weather on the vintage. Mm. And I should also say, people should also follow you on Twitter, Gavin Quinney, your name, because uh, you're proud spoken about politics and also about duty levels, aren't you? I mean, you're always putting really good graphics up about duty levels. Just showing people, particularly in the UK, how much of a bottle of wine that they buy in the UK goes to the government, right? Mm, yeah. Yeah, I do. I've I've always had a slight beef with it, really, I suppose. Um uh, but none more so than at the moment, <laughs> you know. Now because it's about to change, isn't it? In August. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole the whole wine trade has been pretty much the whole. I mean, ninety five percent of the wine trade have been up in arms about the the concept of taxing wine, imposing duty on wine based on the level of alcohol. That's just in the same way that you do with beer and and, and spirits or whatever, mm. which is ludicrous. You manufacture spirits to what thirty seven point five percent fault. You know, wine isn't isn't made like that and and many of the big independents you know there i could think of lots of people with between you know two two to seven thousand product lines well mm. if you start taxing it on the level of alcohol you've got to change those every year but more mm. to the point the i don't mind so much the duty increase but when we think you know your friends my friends in in england you know eight pounds on a bottle of wine would be seen by a lot of people as um, not expensive, but sort of the upper limit of what they would spend because the national average at retail is what six pounds fifty or something. Still, yeah. But but, yeah. but from August, you know, on an eight pound bottle of wine from the first of August, fifty percent is UK tax. So you're yeah. left with four quid, which includes mm. the retailer margins and any other margins, mm. the, the bottling, the distribution, the shipping, and then the wine, and then and then people people always talking about sustainability. Well, you can't do much about sustainability when you've got 70 P's worth of wine in the bottle. You mm. know, it's, it's, uh, so I just think, um, yeah. And, and of course I wasn't, I wasn't very keen when, when, when with Brexit, when the government changed the rule that with, within the EU, you could transport as much wine as you liked for your own mm. use, uh, from, you know, normally back from France to, mm to the uk and then it's now limited to 24 bottles plus a few bottles so that affected you as well yeah yeah but i think just generally i think if people wanted to come across and explore wine regions you want to go back with it you know i did mm. before i came here i used to buy mm. you know, just you just want to and then you drive back i'm not saying that they're going to get stopped necessarily but but you are supposed to pay duty on it you know and that's a shame i think it's a shame i admire your outspokenness on twitter i must say listen last question um you're a big Chelsea fan. Uh, you even fly over to watch a lot of the home games. You've got a season ticket, haven't you? Yeah. Is that your main interest outside? Why there are other things that interest you too? Uh, football generally. Sport, actually, fun enough, uh, you know, Angela's more keen on sport. You know, she, she'll watch the tennis, the cricket, absolutely everything. I mean, she'll fly back to go and go and sit with her dad at Lords and all the rest of it. So I, I uh, but thankfully the, the, the kids are into, um, so I go with Georgie and Bugs to uh, often to Chelsea. So it's a good, it's a good reason to A, have brought them up as Chelsea, brought them up as Chelsea fans, but, but I get to see them. So um, it's, you know, you know, with travel, it's, I'm not, well, let's not date this episode too much by talking about the problems that Chelsea are having, but uh, other things. Yeah. I mean, Wine and wine, 
playing football take up quite a big stuff. But of course, within that, there's all your friends and family and and socialising and and yeah, I, I like cooking as well. Actually, I quite like a bit of cooking. So we, it'd be good to see you down here, Tim, with a and maybe um, we'll have a little Cote de Boeuf and a glass I, of tasty. I think I think a Cote de Boeuf and a, and a bottle of your wine sounds very good. Several bottles yeah. of wine sounds great. Listen, Gavin, it's been great talking to you. Uh, thank you for sharing your story with me today and see you very soon. Thank you, Tim. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. What a great and inspiring tale. Whoever said that owning a chateau was easy didn't know the reality. But Gavin has succeeded at Chateau Beauduc. I guess next week on Cork Talk is the brilliant wine auctioneer Charlie Foley from Christie's. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at timatkin.com and on Instagram at TimAtkinMW. See you next week.